Greyhound leader to trap one. Emergency alert to all radar stations. Hello and welcome to the Trap One podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Conrad. Thanks for joining me, Conrad. Uh, so regular listeners <laughs> will remember you've recorded a couple of episodes at Doctor Who events, so it's great to have you yes. on to do a review finally. Thank you very much. Survived uh, Fenric and the Demons, so I'm sure, sure Yeti won't be too much problem. Yeah, yeah, you kind of cut in a, a groove of um, sort of folk, <laughs> folk horror type stuff there, aren't you? <laughs> a- ancient evils, yeah. That's, you know, it's on brand for me. Yeah. <laughs> So we're going to talk about the 1967 Patrick Trance story, The Abominable Snowman, which is out on vinyl today. This is from the fifth season of Doctor Who, and it's set between Tomb of the Cybermen and the Ice Warriors. It's known as the Monster Season, um, and it originates with the Yeti and the Great Intelligence and the Ice Warriors. Uh, I think you're saying you weren't that familiar with this story before now? No, I've got to say, when it comes to a lot of missing episode stuff, I'm not really that au fait with them. I've sort of watched a few um, sort of recons here and there, but generally I think maybe in the back of my head I've been kind of hoping for either a return or for them to be um, put into a really big solid format, which hopefully with the Blu-rays maybe we'll get. Um, But no, so this was a really, a pretty brand new, I knew the sort of loose structure of it, but this was a very new experience for me, so first time viewer fun really. Yeah, How about you? Um, yeah, I think I bought the CD years ago and listened to it once. Um, but I think that sort of relative inaccessibility of the missing stories means you just don't revisit them as often. No. Um, but this year, with the, we were saying just before, the, the beautiful new vinyls that have come out of Galaxy 4, the Daleks Master Plan, Evil of the Daleks, I've really enjoyed revisiting yeah. the stories uh, to talk about them on the podcast. So, and I guess it keeps yeah. the interest high in them as well for when they get animated. Yes, of course, of course. And I don't know if they're remastering, presumably they're remastering them or they do something to them to make them sound great. Although I'm sure Mark Ayres will do, you know, his own incredible magic on them when they come for uh, Blu-rays. Yeah, because they, they, I think there was a story, wasn't it, earlier this year or last year about them finding a, a load of audio stuff of missing stories in a skip. Oh, yeah. It's like the highest quality that, that they'd ever found. So, yeah, you'd imagine it's those that they're going to use for, for future releases. Oh, it's, oh, it's very, very exciting. Um, yeah. But to be honest, I was just excited to see the story for the first time. That was the real... Um, I, I, I'm trying to think back. I don't think I've read a novelisation. I think I've just been very, very lazy and thought, well, that'll be good one day when I can see it. So, yeah, this was a... This was a shock. How, how did you ever watch it, Mark? Did you? Yeah, I've, I've been watching the, the Loose Cannon reconstructions uh, that yes. I have on the internet. And I, I've put the CD in my car as well. I've only got a very short commute to work, but uh, over the course of about a week, I've listened to the whole story as well. <laughs> Excellent. How about you? Yeah, I've been doing, a, doing, the, doing the loose motions on the Daily Cannon myself for the last <laughs> week. I can thoroughly recommend it. <laughs> but yeah, it's amazing. Um, so, I mean... It gets off to a really, really strong start. That's it seems to kick off like the amazing pre-credit sequence, or just a really, really strong, bold opening. Yeah, the the bits in the TARDIS at the start I thought were really <laughs> lovely with the um, with the crew in there when they they the Doctor realizes where they are, so he has them looking through the um, the trunk in the TARDIS <laughs> control room, uh, which I think is the trunk from Power of the Daleks. Well, oh, right, that's cool as well. Um, but the way he finds the the sort of the I don't know vague sort of sci-fi object. This is the thing that I guess you can't really see what it looks like. And he says, "Oh, it's great to yeah. see this again." And you go, "What is it?" I don't know, but it's great to see it again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's lovely. And then of course Jamie gets hold of the bagpipes, and yeah. um, of course it's very. <laughs> 
then he, then, then there's this thing that he's looking for is this, this ganter bell, um, which I, I, well, I suppose we'll pick it up later, but I have questions about that bell. Mm. Um, but it's, the, the interesting thing is it's from, you know, uh, the fact he says he's been here before. And I think this is the, I had a look, and I think this is the, own, the first time he's sort of revisited somewhere he's been before, as, as in um, name-dropping when he's been here before. I think Celestial Toymaker, he might have said, oh, I've been in the, you know, the Toymaker, maybe there was some more like, we, we meet again business in that. But I think this is one of the first times he's come back, and I wonder if that's who, what, who was so excited, because he was so giddy with excitement, wasn't he, having landed the TARDIS properly and, and all of that. Yeah, and it's, it's obviously from the period when he had absolutely no control over the TARDIS. <laughs> uh, so you can understand that that excitement. And when, when he tries yeah. on the, um, the fur coat... And Victoria says, oh, you look beautiful. And he goes, yes, I thought I might. It's just, it's, it's, <laughs> I mean, he's just a joy, isn't he? I mean, you could probably, I mean, any Trouton story, you could just talk about Trouton the entire way through because he's, he's incredible because you, you think, I don't know, I always feel like I, I think I've got a, um, a handle on what he is. And then you see him again. Every time I see him, he just surprises me. There's mm-hmm. a real, um, I noticed this time, there's some really good gags, you know, some good, clean, um, really cleanly delivered, big old, great gags, great stuff with him and Jamie. Um, but also, so he tends to really go for those and make a really big moment of the joke. Then everything in between, he treads really, really lightly on all the plot stuff and all the really big important stuff. And generally in the story, he's, he's always in the background and it's just gorgeous. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think the closest he comes to those big kind of doctor moments uh, he very much underplays them. It's like when he, uh, and we'll, we'll get to this as well, I guess, the, the dehypnotizing of Victoria. Uh, yeah. The, Jamie says, I didn't know you could do that. And he says, oh, neither did the person that hypnotized her. And I, and a bit like the thing with the, with the fur coat that I just mentioned, it kind of, when I heard that, I thought every single doctor would have delivered that differently. Uh, yeah. Some of them would have been very knowing about it, or like Colin Baker yeah. would have been sort of... Uh, you know, kind of a little arrogant with it sort of thing. But but Troughton just plays just the joy of it, just the excitement at finding the court, at being where he is. Um, yeah, it's gorgeous. It's, 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 it, yeah, yeah, I'm totally with you. It, it, it really ignites the story. Like, all three yeah. of them are in great spirits to, to start with. It's just fab. But he never has any really big, heroic sort of... Because um, even Hartnell, you know, he, he stands up to the war machines or in, in The Dark Invasion of Earth, he says, you know, we must pit ourselves against them. Um, yeah. Trouton's probably the only one that doesn't have those kind of big I am the doctor moments like that um, but this is maybe the, the couple of points where he comes close in this when he when he finally confronts the great intelligence at the end or uh, yeah, he, he often sort of seems to reveal or his, his sort of version of, of facing up to a, a bad guy or a villain just seems to be just observing them for one moment and just telling them the truth or just sort of observing what they are like with Cleek saying well, now I know you're insane. I just wanted to make sure. And he, he often will just, either sometimes quite sadly, mm. just a quick little still moment where he'll just say what that person is or, or was or what he thinks they are. And he does it really, it's incredible. I mean, he's, he's an amazing, amazing actor. Stop me now, because as I said, yeah. I could talk about travel <laughs> for the entire time. No, that, that made me think of a really beautiful bit in Evil of the Daleks as well, when, I can't remember, if, I don't think I talked about this on the podcast, when, they they're talking about because he's helping the Daleks with their experiments with the, the human factor and Jamie or somebody says right. you know you this could lead to to the genocide of a race and he says yes it may well come to that 
Um, and you realize afterwards that he's talking about the Daleks, not the humans. Um, but it is that moment, like you say, where he sort of sees the threads and unpicks it very subtly. Yeah. Yeah. He just, he just seems to know the heart of what he's, the heart of what he's going to. And, and he, he, yeah, he always picks it up at the end. He just, he's brilliant. He's just brilliant. Yeah. And I felt this was a really good story for Victoria as well. The, the, the early on, she's the one that gets um, Jamie and her out of the TARDIS and exploring. It's her sort of curiosity and impatience that leads them to yeah. find the Yeti cave. And then once they're in the monastery, um, the bit where she's she's so curious about seeing the master, the uh, Padma Sambhava, um, and then she thinks, well, the doctor, she, he probably knows the doctor and I can kind of help wrap things up. And the bit where she pre- pretends to be poisoned by the water. So, she is. So clever. Yeah. Yeah, she, she, I have to say, Victoria was a revelation to me in this. Um, mm. she, she's never been a favourite companion of mine. I, th- I think I've often just sort of, um, again, it is my ignorance not having caught up with so many, because so much of her stuff is missing. Um, and I always imagine her as the more Tomb of the Cybermen version, um, which is generally lots of being being very, very frightened. And this was a total revelation. Like like you said, she was, I mean, she tr- poor Tomney is just trying to keep her contained. Yeah. <laughs> And she just absolutely, that poor boy, she completely runs rings around him. And she sort of uncontainably is insatiably curious. Um, even at the end, the doctor's like, right, we've all got to leave now. And she's like, I'm not going. He says, well, no, I didn't think yeah. you would. Um, and I really, I really like this sort of, you know, it's a great character trait, great for a Doctor companion. Um, so, yeah, total revelation to me in this story. Yeah, and then it just occurred to me as well. I don't, I don't really know anything about Buddhism, but the other sort of story that's always talked about in terms of Buddhism is Planet of the Spiders, where it's the third doctor's yeah. curiosity that is ultimately his downfall, isn't it? And that's kind of yeah. woven into the story. And and in this, it's Victoria's going all out to to get into the sanctum with Padma Sambhava, uh, which leads yeah. to the, the bit where she's possessed. And I thought that was just fantastically creepy, where she's got that pre-programmed response to hearing the doctor's voice. That is terrifying. The way she delivers it, exactly the same each time. Yeah, it's really chilling. Because there's something very doll-like about uh, uh, Deborah Watling and Mm -hmm. Victoria, something very doll-like about her. So the fact she's just starting repeating is is terrible. Like you said, it is terrifying. Yeah, she starts off really sort of plaintive and and then she's pleading and beseeching him by the, by the end of the line. Uh, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, the only thing I thought with that was they, because the, the doctor says, well, if we don't get her away from here, she'll eventually lose her mind, which, again, a terrifying idea that, that, that that's going yeah. to happen to her. felt like they could have made a bit more of it. It could have lasted a bit longer and, and maybe been more of a sort of a ticking clock for the episode. You know, like we, we have to wrap this up and get Victoria out of here, but it's uh, yeah. resolved fairly quickly. It's true, actually. It's sort of building up. It certainly sort of speeds up towards the end. But, um, yeah, it's fantastic. And, again, this the great intelligence itself, I suppose we'll we'll come to that later, but, like, its influence over all parts of the story is just sort of gets gets fascinating. Um, And what did you think of the location, this incredible, uh, you know, the Himalayas? Here we are. No expense spared, was there? It was uh, (laughs) to to get the crew out there. It, it, it could have been in the studio, you know, that we could have had a very different story on our hands. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I guess it was in the studio, you'd have got snow, but you wouldn't have got the 
panoramic landscapes, although they would have been paint, yeah. painted backdrop sort of thing. Um, I think you, yeah. you quickly forget that there isn't any snow there, don't you? And uh, that yeah, that's not really a, a huge problem. The uh, I, I did um, have a look through Terence Dick's novelization um, oh, oh. just to see what uh, you know, kind of what he made of it because been sort of revisiting a few you know a few of his books as well yeah. um so the first obvious thing he does is make it really snowy um but uh, a couple of nice changes i thought that he made were the the bit in the tardis at the beginning where well jamie doesn't know where the himalayas are at all which is naturally wouldn't have heard of them um sure. uh, but he, he does give victoria the correct answer to where they are uh which is not um, and he takes the line out that uh, the bit where Chris Song believes Travers because he's an Englishman, um, that's oh changed goodness. as well. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good cut. Yeah, an increasingly, increasingly far-fetched uh, aspect of the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's fantastic. Uh, I, I loved. I have to. Say, I loved the um, the location was was fantastic. It's it's um, you know pretty simple, but like it totally sells it, and, and the story's got a very um, it's got a very strong sense of place. I think obviously mm-hmm. if you set something in a very particular location and particular time, you really, it's just very, very evocative. And this, with a few re- relatively simple pieces, a sort of model shot of a monastery, and some location filming, it, it's, it's very stripped down and simplified, but it, you get, never for one moment do I imagine I'm on a set or in Wales. You know, I really, I, it, it really sells it. It, it, it. All those elements really work together for a sort of strong sense of, of, of place, which I think is great. Yeah, definitely. There's um, I, I can't quite remember which other movies it was, but the the, the story I read, I think it might have been in um, Patrick Trout's biography by his son about the um, when they they were scouting around for locations and they went to Wales uh, and this they met this guy in a pub and he had the strongest Welsh accent they'd ever heard, but he. He trekked them up this mountain, and he was pointing out loads of movies that had been filmed in the same place. And then he, he got to a certain spot and says, "And this could be Tibet." And they looked round, and it was absolutely perfect where he uh, where he pointed out to them. Oh, so awesome! Quite by chance, yeah. This local had just uh, just pointed out the exact right spot. Oh, it's meant to be that yeah. mysterious that mysterious figure, whoever he was. <laughs> um, and the and the yeti as well against that backdrop. Um, yeah, look fantastic. Absolutely, I, I really like the uh, the cave as well that uh, Victoria and Jamie uh, go in go into. And the fact um, when I saw the the Yeti attacking them in the cave, I suddenly thought, oh, actually, that Five Doctors uh, cameo of the of the Yeti attacking the brig and, and the Doctor in the cave. I thought, oh, this is what it's calling back to. Do you know what I mean? It, mm. it sort of made sense of that to me. Um, but you know, the Yeti are great. They're funny. They're, they're I mean. They're big and cuddly and a little bit comical, but they just work. I mean, the Daleks are as well a bit, you know, comical, but they they completely work, and I can't really figure out why. Yeah, I think the, the sheer physicality of them is a factor, I think, how how huge they are. Um, and I think yeah. particularly these ones versus the Web of Fear ones. Yes. The, the lack of sort of facial features makes them really inscrutable. So especially yeah. standing still and, and just watching the monastery or guarding the TARDIS, that makes them more mysterious and threatening. You're right. They are, in this, they're more like sentinels or, or something, aren't they? They're, or guards. And, and, and uh, yeah, Web of Fear, they're definitely going for like, rah, we're a monster from outer space with big eyes and a laser gun. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I guess the glowing, yeah, right. eyes, the glowing eyes maybe wouldn't really have shown up on location as well as in the darkness of the of the underground. You can see, yeah, you just, as well. you just don't need them in this, do you? No, uh, that's it. Um, and, and by the web of fear, everybody kind of knows their robots as well, I suppose. So um, whereas, yeah, light bulb eyes might have uh, been a been a giveaway early <laughs> on in this one. <laughs> that's true, and also I love the. Um, I think this is uh, again talking about the great intelligence. I just I love the sense of scale they. With this story, um, they tend to do. Uh, you've got the tiny, tiny model yetis that, that come later for moving pieces around. Mm-hmm. You've got the spheres, which are obviously, which have got real character in them. They're, the spheres are fantastic. Then you kind of get the yeti, and then you get a good couple of layers of a hierarchy within the, the monastery, right up to the great intelligence. So you get this. I think it does two things. It gives you the sense of scale, of control from a, a very big thing. Sort of controlling down and down, sort of Russian doll-like, um, into the smallest, tiniest thing. I also think it gives it the, the Yeti give it this puppet thing, you know, knowing that there's this is big um, disembodied entity controlling things. The fact that the, the Yeti is silent mm-hmm. and they just lumber about quietly and they wait. The fact that they're puppet-like, I think it, it kind of gives you a nasty insight into what it would be like to be possessed by. The great intelligence, which is why I think it's quite scary later when Victoria gets possessed, because we already know we've already seen its influence in puppeteering things. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's quite horrific the idea that Padma Sambhavar has been uh, kept alive far beyond his natural span to sort of three hundred years or three hundred years plus, and he's this this withered husk who who just wants now to die, but he's he's kept alive. To fulfil this plan, oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's just terrific terrifying and tragic. The original ending had his face melting, um, but uh, oh, it was no. yeah deemed too horrific, so they so they reshot it. Yeah. Hey, we were brought up on Dragonfire. It didn't do yeah. us any harm. <laughs> That's exactly what it reminded me of. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, but what about the and also the um, the monastery itself, the setting, um, you know, as well as the actual the mountains. Again, just these, these sets appear to be very simple, um, but the monastery is, is. I mean, overall, it's a very sparse story, and the monastery just feels very, very real. I, I don't know what more to say than that. Really, it just feels completely real. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and a nice twist on the base under siege that the uh, it's all <laughs> being controlled from within as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, it's, and of course, it sounds amazing. Just but on this vinyl release is going to be a, a treat. Um, the the you know you're obviously on the uh, in the Himalayas, you've got that sort of whistling wind, and, and when you're in the monastery, there's there's that still feeling of the wind outside and the echo and the acoustics, and it's all very sort of whispers in the monastery, people talking in hushed tones, and when and the, and the chanting, that beautiful chanting, which I'm guessing is a stock recording. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's just beautiful, especially for a story with no music. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, it's 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 unusual in that sense, isn't it? But I think that helps the atmosphere a lot. Like you say, the the, the wind out in the Himalayas, and then the the, the point where <laughs> the the Yetis have got into the monastery. Uh, you hear the wind inside the monastery as well, um, which yeah. adds to that feeling of it being compromised and it, it being invaded. So the voice of Padma Sambhavar, when he's got the two voices, he's got the very sort of deep, wise, benevolent, calm voice um, and the, the horrible kind of whispering, snarling, great intelligence voice. It's like, it's like Gollum or something. It's, uh, I think it's a brilliant performance. 
it's, it's, it's astonishing. And I mean, it's, it's one of his, the star of the show, I think. And especially, I think if you're listening to this on vinyl, mm. that's going to be uh, such a treat. I, again, it was a, I'd, I'd, I'd heard a bit of it before, but I hadn't really got into the whole thing. And I totally agree with you that the, the different, his different mind states are kind of are like nightmarish. Um, you know, he's got this kind of weird, trembling, hypnotic thing. But then he will suddenly switch and just hiss and snarl. And he can actually make, it actually made me jump <laughs> at one point. He just totally switched. And it is that, for, for an actor with such control over his voice, it, it, it does actually have that effect on you as the audience. You start to sort of jump a bit. Then you, you tend to go a little bit dreamy along with it. So he's, it's so effective. I reckon, I've tried to think of any anyone else who was as good. And I, I came up with uh, Gabriel Wolf. I think, you know, Sutek and the Beast is a good... Yeah. It's pretty amazing. And Michael Wisher's Davros is another favourite. And I kind of ran out. I, I think this is this is up there. Yeah. It's one of the best vocal performances ever in Doctor Who. Maybe Stephen Thorne, the other one, these... Uh... Good on Stephen Thorne, that's a legend. Yeah. yeah. Omega and Azal. Yeah. It's, uh... Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, this guy... Yeah, doesn't get he's the audits, this guy. It's, uh, I think um, I might be wrong. Is it, I think he's called Wolf Morris. Yeah, that's it. And I, I yeah. had a look. At, it's funny you mentioned that he he's like the Gollum because he played the Gollum in um in the nineteen sixty eight uh, BBC radio uh, thing of the Hobbit. Ah, oh, wow! I hadn't realised that. Uh, your full cult skills are showing there, yeah. Mark. That like, <laughs> that's exactly what he's like. Um, but I had look, the, uh, he's, he's done absolutely tons of stuff. Really well respected actor. These people have done their time in the theatres. So they really know how to control their voice. Um, but the other, uh, it was quite amusing. The other part, so he played, he played a Sherpa guide called Kusang in the Hammer production of The Abominable Snowman with uh, Pete Cushing. So he, <laughs> I think that was later. So maybe this got him the gig. I don't know. Oh wow, that is amazing. Okay, but he's brilliant. Look, yeah, it's 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 funny that he's um he's he's not really named in the same the same way, but I guess it's that that curse of the missing episodes a little bit as well, isn't it? That they just don't have the profile. Definitely, um, so. I mean this, and I think certainly on the Blu-ray release, we'll I mean, we'll start to readdress that because he it, it's astonishing. It's one of the best villains in Doctor Who I've ever seen. I think the key thing I'm trying to describe what his voice was like, and uh, I kept. Re- disembodied it really does feel like this voice is somewhere else and, yeah. and, and it's interesting that voice tends to um they, they're very clever they play with it a lot there's uh, when you first see him he's using these couple of different registers but then he's having a one-sided conversation with the great intelligence who we can't hear and we're wondering like who's he talking to and then Later on, him and they're doing that Gollum thing. Him and the great, him the great intelligence are having a conversation through him, and then he passes his voice on to Victoria. Or you know, it's it's brilliant. It's really brilliant for a disembodied creature that you can't quite locate it. Locate its influence. I think it's just gorgeous. Yeah, because he's probably not in the story that much, but his presence hangs over the whole thing, doesn't he? And then, like, so he pops up. We don't <laughs> expect like um, his, his words coming out of Victoria's mouth. Yeah, it is, you do get a sense of, you know, with, especially with all these little puppets and little things he controls and these voices, it, you do feel this insidious spread of this this kind of invisible, this sort of weird influence. And, and I didn't, um, this one that intrigued me, the, I think it was at the Abbott, or was it Padma Sambhava, said that he, he encountered the great intelligence on an astral plane. You know, he was obviously doing the astral projection type stuff. Um 
And the doctor said, oh, yes, you made mental contact. Um, but he, it's sort of one of these like quasi-spiritual monsters sort of threats that Doctor Who only occasionally does. Mm. Yeah. Because you, you get the Mara and there's a bit of Garden of Evil type stuff and you never really see it. Um, there's the Beast, which is he the devil, is he not? And Fenric, you know, sort of faith-belief-based uh, ancient evil... One of those is it's up there with one of those. Yeah, and, and, and I yeah, think the animus. I kind of well, thought that. Yeah. yeah, there is another one. Yeah, it's it's, it's Padma isn't it? Because the, the the other scene I really like going back to Victoria was when she's telling Tomney, uh, she says, "You're not going to believe this, but the Doctor is a time traveller. He can travel through time and space." <laughs> and as yeah. opposed to everybody else they meet, he goes, "Oh yeah, yeah, that's I know about that. Yeah, Padma Sambavar can do that. He can." <laughs> Uh, his, his consciousness can drift through the astral plane and, uh, and go through his space. Right. So that was kind of a nice reversal of that um, that sort of revelation. Um, but Definitely. Then, and, she, and, she, and Victoria like really did end up playing the Doctor to uh, Tomney's companion, you know. Yeah. And, uh, the, the, the other monk that keeps calling her a devil woman. It's, uh, <laughs> I love that. Yeah, anytime, anytime he can, he just sort of suddenly jumps in and goes, she's a devil woman. Yeah. <laughs> I think also they've probably never seen a woman before. <laughs> so there's probably an immediate mistrust there. That is true. And she, it has to be said, she is, she's a nightmare. You know, trying to contain her or look after her. I mean, in the best possible way, she's making such a nuisance of herself. Oh, she's brilliant. I wish she was like this all the time. I really do. She's, I really, really fell in love with Victoria in this story. For the first time, I thought she's great. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a shame that it's, it's not one that exists for, for, for Deborah Watling's kind of... Uh, Doctor Who career. Yeah. Well, it's, it's great it's coming back. This is a, this is a lovely, this is a lovely treatment of it. Uh, the other bit, uh, just uh, again, that works well on audio, I thought, while we're talking about that, is when the Doctor goes into Padma Samavar's sanctum at the end and yeah. immediately goes in and lets out this howl of pain. <gasps> Incredibly it's really shocking. shocking. Yeah. I think you don't yeah, normally get that with, from Troughton, and and it's immediate as well. It's it's just a really unsettling moment. He goes in, you think, well, something's going to happen in a few seconds, but you immediately get this cry of pain. It, yeah, it's it's brilliant. It's a real, like you said, it's a real howl. It really comes from somewhere that you you don't normally hear the doctor crying out in pain like that. It's it's a shocker. I tell you what else shocked me is the moment um, the Yeti attack the monastery, and one of them pushes the Buddha over. Uh, which kills, I think, Chris Ong. And I don't know why, that seems... I, I kind of gasped. It was kind of a jaw-on-the-floor moment. I, you know, I never bad I lived in the blow up a church and the demons, but pushing over this um, Buddha statue, kind of... I just couldn't believe they did it. You know, it's such a beautifully made studio prop, I can't believe they just wrecked it. But it seemed... I think maybe I was just really into the story, and I think mm. if you've got this great intelligence that's sort of... Creeping its way into to humankind through religion and belief i think toppling the the nearest you know yeah. uh, deity is is i thought it's you know it's a good good clear symbol of that and i thought yeah maybe that's why it kind of shocked me really it's great yeah i think that symbolism like you say isn't it that they've used the religion against them and that's the the ultimate expression of that is is he's crushed under the under the buddha yeah. Oh man, that was that, that was a shock moment. I got a, I got a shocked emoji face that I scribbled yeah. next to that moment. That's how shocked. <laughs> uh, 
Um, I was going to say, I think, I think it just goes back to that thing I was saying about the scale. You know, you go from these tiny, tiny little uh, chess piece yetis through all of these different stages, right through the hierarchy of the... And and, um, and, and, that, and things like the Buddha falling over, it does speak to what is this what is this thing that, that's attacking us? Like, and is, it, is it on that level? Because it is sort of a bit nebulous, isn't it, as to what the the great intelligence's plan is. Uh, it wants yeah. physical form, and then it seems from what Padma Samvara says originally, it was just happy to be in the cave. Uh, yeah. And then it said, now it wants the whole mountain, and you get the sense that it's not going to stop at the mountain. It's going to, uh, you know, keep, keep, well, it's kind of like some some kind of goo, isn't it? That's um, well, it's yeah, it's physical of, form. It's some kind of yeah goo that seems to sort of like they said, oh, it's covering the whole mountain. Yeah, um, in the in the audio, uh, Fraser Hines, uh, when um, uh, when Songston opens the uh, he cracks open the the pyramid in the cave. Fraser Hines' description is it disgorges its glutinous mass. <laughs> nice, <laughs> thanks, Fraser. <laughs> thanks, Fraser. Um, <laughs> yeah well whatever that stuff yeah. is i think i, th- I think it, it, someone just said you know what's what's going to do and they just it, it said it's just going to expand and i suppose that's all consciousness and intelligence can do right i suppose if it's just it just needs to grow that's all it knows it has to expand um it's it's a weird one because it's not like a it's not like a, a sci-fi invisible intelligence in the way that um the nesting consciousness is a mm. You know, it's an, very much an alien thing. I think the spiders with all that stuff with the mandala is still, you know, space magic. Um, the demons are from another planet. But this this one feels like one of those, I don't know, if it, if it comes from somewhere else. It's about something else. It doesn't necessarily feel, feel alien. But it came back a few times, didn't it, um, after this? The yeah. Great Intelligence. It, had, um, it, it, it came back in the Web of Fear. And then the snowmen and the in, sn- uh, what was that? Uh, the Snowman, yeah, and it is a prequel to this in a way, isn't it? Because it's the, although this is the first time the Doctor meets the Great Intelligence, the Snowman is the first time the Great Intelligence meets the Doctor. Ah, that's it, that's it. That, that's good. And then I, I had a look, and I'd completely forgotten it. It was in Bells of St. John as well. Apparently it was the thing behind the Wi-Fi, which seems a bit a bit weak. Yeah, I <laughs> but, suppose it's the web thing, isn't it? The web of fear being the... Um, the uh, the internet, I guess, in uh, in that sense. Yes. Oh, that's true. The web. Okay. All right. I'm back on board again. And then the <laughs> name of the doctor. The name of the doctor is in control of those whispermen thing. And that's that's fair. It's Doctor Who's birthday. I'm sure the Great Intelligence was like, right, I'll have a piece of that. Yeah. It's it's a shame the Yeti didn't come back. Um, but I guess oh, I mean, no. it would have it would have made even less sense than in the London Underground. But it occurred to me watching this. Um, especially watching episode two, which is the one that still exists, you wouldn't need to do anything to the Yeti to bring them back. They would no. still look great virtually, much like they didn't do much to the Zygons. You know, the, these you could bring the Yeti back and they wouldn't need to be updated. Definitely not. And then this show, this, this, I think this story shows you how to use them. You know, mm-hmm. the fact that they're, they're, they're these silent pieces, these silent puppets, are great. Yeah. It's apparently the the production team was so impressed with them once they saw the props that were built. That was why they commissioned the Web of Fear. Uh, they thought they could, oh, no. that, that sort of constant search, they always had to, to find something to replace the Daleks or to be as big as the Daleks. And they thought, great, we'll, use yeah. we'll, we'll bring them back, which is always the end of this season. Uh, then they're back ah. again in the Web of Fear. Ah, that's why uh, Mervyn Hazeman and 
Henry Lincoln, who I think their money was on the Quarks for their third story. They were that was going to be their big. Yeah. Oh, oh well, um, never mind. But yeah, no, Yeti are lovely, and I'm, I'm really chuffed we got them them back in the Five Doctors. Which again, and again, it reminded me of the Five Doctors. The uh, the pieces on the board mm-hmm. reminds me of the Death Zone. It is. It, it was almost like the bigger the threat, the more influential the threat. The kind of smaller, the sort of uh, that they tend to often use a game thing like a chess or uh, a puppet or, or or a figure. I don't know. There's some there's something about these, or maybe like the Eternals with playing this game. You know, I, I love the idea of these great big forces, gods of Ragnarok, or all, all sort of manipulating us down below with these little, you know, as playthings of the mm-hmm. gods, which I think is you know it's an archetypal old story, but it's a bloody good one. And that's like Fenric as well with the with the chess set in that, isn't it? That um, the chess yeah. set in Lady Payne's fort in Lady Painfort's study, um, where every time the Doctor revisits it, it's been moved, and and that was Fenric moving as well. Yeah, yeah, I love that. that and again, McCoy, you can imagine McCoy in this story. Yeah, <laughs> it only just occurred to me then. The Doctor wears this coat in the Five Doctors, doesn't he? The the big fur coat. Yeah, yeah, he does. So it's a really nice callback i did i hadn't really appreciated it as, as much terence dix knows what he's doing absolutely yeah that's uh, probably the only two stories he wears it in um but it is is what the, the photos from it are, are probably kind of iconic enough that it is a look that you associate with the second doctor yeah i kind of did wonder what the uh you know like you said you've, seen it, you've, you've become so used to seeing it in the story, it was just kind of interesting to see what that was about. I was like, okay, so what is this fur coat business about? And Jamie does that thing of uh, mistaking the Doctor for the Yeti, um, which yeah. is like a neat moment. But actually, I think it's really clever, especially given the little ending where Travers spots something in the uh, in the Himalayas. Because the, the you know the uh, the, um, the the myth of the Yeti and the abominable snowman is like, is it a man? Is it? you know what is it and just that thing of it being easily mistaken i like the fact that 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 jamie mistakes him in his fur coat i think that's cute yeah and travis does at the beginning as well of course um he he does yeah he's attacked his camp yeah it it occurred to me when i was listening to it as well abominable snowman is such a lovely archaic name for something isn't it abominable snowman (laughs) yeah so i was yeah it's great i was looking up to see where the name came from yeah, there's two theories as to where it comes from. One is that it was a garbled message um, that somebody mixed up two parts of a report where they talked about bear-like snowmen along with complaints about this abominable snow. Um, and then this is how they, they got named Abominable Snowman. And then the other one is a mistranslation of one of the names that the Sherpas have for the creatures, which is Metokangmai, which means man-bear. Which got different connotations yes. uh, nowadays, I guess. Um, but they mistranslated "meto" as "filthy" instead of "man," and then used some artistic license to to come to come to "abominable" instead. Wow! <laughs> I'm like, I, I, I don't know which of those is right. I wouldn't like to say. Yeah. Um, I'm going to follow that up. I'm going to I'm going to going to get to the bottom of the filthy man mystery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to say that. And the other really interesting I thought was that the uh, in America. They had rules for American expeditions to hunt the Yeti as recently as the 1950s. Oh, blessed. Um, <laughs> what, what, what can you say? They're American. Love <laughs> um, and Edmund Hillary founded, found suspected Yeti tracks in 1960. So I guess that was, especially when this was made, was, was very recent. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and it's, it's um, stuff like that. You know, the the the, uh, the paranormal and the uh, or supernormal, as as uh, the doctor says in this story. I suppose that was gaining a lot of traction. You know, 50s, 60s, 70s. You know, Loch Ness monsters and and Yeti and UFOs and all that stuff. So, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. It made me wonder if the great intelligence called itself that, so it had an adjective in front of its name, um, as well as the snowmen. It didn't just kind of not to be left out. <laughs> yeah, just like, I'm an intelligence. Oh, no, wait, wait. I'm great. <laughs> he went through all the adjectives and filthy intelligence. That's <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. I love that. And, and also I love the fact that it's all based on this kind of mystery and hearsay and it's exactly that, the Doctor getting mistaken by Jamie, getting mistaken by Travers for a, a Yeti, and it was which were the real ones, which one aren't. I love it's based on this kind of superstition, because you've got the, the nice, again, it's this layers within layers thing. You've got the um, you know the great intelligence being whatever that mystery thing is. You've got the whole Buddhism aspect to it. And then it comes right down to kind of superstition, you know, everyday superstition. It all blurs together in this tiny little, uh, I don't know, this... I just keep going back to it, that kind of scale between the sort of the influence of, of larger things over us. Definitely. And apparently David Bowie was a fan of this story as well. No way. Yeah, so Fraser Hines tweeted a couple of months ago um, that he'd been having supper with David Bowie and said he loved the story and told them that they had pronounced Padma Sambhava correctly. Yeah. There's the endorsement. There There's the endorsement right there. That's it. That should be and it's actually, front of the vinyl, shouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. And when we're talking about um, sort of legends, um, I can't go go uh, go through this without talking about Kate Bush. Um, I was just thinking about this going on to vinyl, um, and it, as we said, it's it's got no music. It's got a really extraordinary acoustics, extraordinary, extraordinary sound design, and I think what's nice about this on vinyl it's going to make a fascinating listen on vinyl because not only do you not have a lot of music cues there's a lot of there's a fair amount of silence there's a fair amount of space in it um but i thought another thing is going to be really nice about it is on vinyl you're going to get that um that sound um uh when Kate Bush released her uh, 50 words for snow album she deliberately wanted it in analog because it gives you that kind of muffled sound that when snow's around it gives you that kind of anechoic as she says uh, mm. snowy muffled sound and I think that's going to really suit this story it's not going to be too hissy or tinny or digital I think being on vinyl it's going to give it a nice sort of texture to it I think yeah well, I think a lot of the 60s ones feel like that that I guess it's the it's the technology of the era as well isn't it it's when yeah, you you would buy a record. You'd, you'd buy a record if you wanted an album or anything. So it, it suits the uh, suits the style of it. Yeah, the the, the app, yeah, I think the atmosphere on this is going to be just gorgeous on vinyl. Because I was at first, I must admit, I was thinking, I don't know if I'd buy. I like vinyl. I don't know if I'd list, want to listen to a Doctor Who episode on it. Obviously, you you've done this with uh, you know, a lot of the previous ones you've reviewed. How do you feel about this one compared to the other ones that have gone before? What do you think it's going to be like? Yeah, I'm not sure. I haven't actually bought any of them apart from Galaxy 4. Um, right. Because they're all really expensive. I'm waiting for them to come down in price a bit. The Dalek, in, uh, yeah. sorry, the Dalek Master Plan has come down to about 75 quid or something from 100. So uh, I'll, uh, I'm going to keep an eye on it. It's come down to 75 quid. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's still a lot of money for a story I already own on CD to own in a, yeah. a much bulkier, more unwieldy way of, um, of playing it. Um, yeah. 
But yeah, I guess I mean, I mean, they're very beautiful. They're, they're very beautiful. Also, these the vinyls and the artwork is really, really beautiful. That's still not enough to make me pay for that much, but they're they're kind of they're they're unusual and they're kind of beautiful. They are. Um, that that, that but, is a big selling point for me. Is it? So the artwork, the the discs themselves. Um, I think these. I think I'm right in saying these ones have got sort of a snowy pattern or something like that on them. Yeah, that's it. Um, but yeah, the. The, Ga- the Galaxy 4 one, I got that, and I did really enjoy listening to it um, on vinyl. There's something, a little uh, ceremony about it, isn't there? Of, um, well, I've only got like a little record player that you take out and open up and all that kind of stuff as well. Um, yeah, it's beautiful. And again, it will give you that, um, uh, that just that thing of, you, you know, you're not going to generally skip around or whatever when you put the record on. So it does sort of make you sit there and go go right through it. I think this one could be a, this would be a nice Christmas present, this one. I quite fancy spending Christmas tanked up on Bailey's and Jurassic yeah. Park and then uh, stick this on I think this would be a nice um, I can really imagine li- just listening to it as a story it's so evocative so atmospheric um, I, I have to say when I saw this story I just thought I can't think of anything wrong with this story I don't want to use the word perfect but this is as good as Doctor Who as I want yeah <laughs> you. definitely um, I think it's one of, like a lot of Doctor Who stories if you if you think a little bit about it there's you know, it's taken the uh, it's taken Padma Samvar two hundred years or so to to build the Yetis and the spheres and everything. But by building yeah. the Yetis, he's he's built something which would attract many people to the area <laughs> if uh, if they uh, if if yeah, they managed they... to get a photo or anything and and got back out alive, uh, then um, they'd be they'd be swamped with Yeti hunters. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Oh, maybe I just I'm not going to look at too closely. I think I'm just going to have it in my head as a yeah yeah. It, 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 I, actually, I just say earlier, I was going to get back to this, this ganter bell that the doctor has. He's sitting because I've got to find this going ganter bell. Do you, did I miss something? Someone else said it got lost or it was lost. It went missing when he was around. Did he nick it or did he rescue it? What do you, do you get any sense of what he did with that? Yeah, they don't. They don't specifically say in the story. They say it was given to him for safekeeping at a time of great danger for the monastery. Uh, and I think in Terence Dix's novelization, I think he says it's it was um I might be wrong, it might be somewhere else I've read this, that it was given the time it was probably like an attempted Chinese invasion of Tibet. Um that, right. that might right. have um, that might have been the danger that they faced. Um but yeah, it is it's kind of uh, it's fun to think which doctor it whether it was Hartnell or Troughton that paid yeah. the visit and yeah. came to look after it. Yeah, if, it, if, if it's Hartnell, he'd have just nicked it. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not having that. Um, but, but also, it's, it's really nice the fact he's, he's piloted the TARDIS successfully and he wants to return this thing. It makes it gives me those McCoy vibes. It makes me feel like there's, it's part of this game. Like he knew he had to return now. I don't know, just in the back of my head, I, I kind of wonder. Yeah, like a he's such a, mysteri- type he's such a mysterious Dr. Trout and he is McCoy-like in that way of what is he up to. Mm. I wonder, I wonder... How well do yeah. you think it ties in with the with the snowmen? Because I was sort of thinking there's some ambiguity sometimes as to whether it's Padma Sambhava or the Great Intelligence that is remembering the Doctor. So if it's Padma Sambhava is remembering him from their first encounter, if it's the Great yeah. Intelligence, I mean obviously it's not as written um, that because <laughs> they, they didn't predict uh, that Stephen Moffat was going to bring them no. back fifty years later. <laughs> no, um, he didn't predict that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, it's weird because he, they're so blended together and he's switching between the two. It's often not clear where he's getting his 
information whether which one's talking so yeah i don't know because i think that as well because I mean, because the, doc, the doctor called, calls permanent you know his old friend um so they were clearly yeah i don't know about that one yeah it suggests that they had a bit of an adventure it wasn't just um a sort of a flying visit or anything um, no i think yeah that ambiguity works as well in terms of because you don't know whether Padma Sambhavar, he just seems, he doesn't really, uh, especially early on, doesn't want to kill the doctor and his friends. He just wants to get them out of there, doesn't he? Hence the hypnotizing of Victoria to say, take me away from here. It was the idea That's that it, they yeah. all go back to the TARDIS and take off. And then I think when he's trying to get all the monks to evacuate the monastery as well, yeah. is that just to, is that... Because they're all like none of them suspect him or, or know what's really going on. So is it just to get them away before the glutinous mass of the intelligence rolls down the mountain towards them? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I wondered about that because I was like, well, isn't he just going to go right? We're blowing up the mountain. You know, we're taking over the mountain, and we don't really care who gets sort of swept away in its path. So I didn't know why they wanted that evacuated. I, I wasn't. I, I, it was a quite. It was definitely a question I had. I'm not sure. I didn't know whether it was so that, so that people would... I don't know, I don't know if he gave it that much thought. Of, well, I did wonder whether he'd sort of thought, right, they'll then go go on and tell people that that mountain's completely, you know, no go. I don't know. Who knows? Those, those strange workings of the great intelligence. Yes, he moves in mysterious ways. <laughs> he certainly does. So that's the Abominable Snowman. Uh, thank you very much for joining me to discuss that one, Conrad. Thank you very much for having me back. Uh, hopefully we'll get you back soon. Love to. Where can we find you on Tinternet? Uh, you can find me on Tinternet on Twitter and at Hair of the Hound underscore. Uh, yeah, I've got the underscore as well. The, you can follow the podcast at Trap1 underscore. There's always somebody beats you to it, isn't there? There is, always. Uh, you can follow me. I'm at Quark McMalice. Thank you very much for listening this time. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>